Uh, hey, I'm Jason. Uh, my story starts off pretty young, about five or six years old, uh, where I experienced some pretty traumatic abuse and um, uh, a family life that um, had some stability, but also a lot of chaos. Uh, interesting to say the least, um, but I had a, a little bit of exposure to church and Christians and things like that that turned me off uh, what I thought it was going to be for life. Uh, so, you know, 10 years went by that I just rejected it all. I hated Christians. I hated church. Uh, what just had nothing to do with it. And um, uh, at 16, I got conned into going to a Christian camp. And at that camp, uh, I heard the preaching and the music and just kind of wrote it all off until the last night where people were raising their hands, crying, kneeling, praying, and just for the first time was forced to really deal with, is this real? Um, I kind of duked it out with God and he won. Uh, he revealed himself to me in a radical way, uh, a way that I still to this day can't explain, but I just was sure. I was sure he was there and that he loved me. My whole life changed after that. Um, I went from being run by bitterness and anger to being able to forgive, to being filled with joy and contentment and peace and strength that I had never imagined possible. Uh, I find the more I get to know him, the more I spend time in Christian community, the more I receive joy, the more I worship and get excited about life. And I just can't wait to keep on that road and keep pursuing him and getting more of his joy. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown. And glad that you're here with us. Jason, thanks so much for doing the video. And it's been fun, uh, each, each of these messages, to have someone share their story. It's Jason's birthday today, and so it's all the more special. And so, hey, man, happy birthday, and we love you. And thanks for serving our church the way you do every single morning. It's really, really awesome. But not to get too mushy on us as we get started, but there we go. All right. Hey, uh, we're continuing a series that we started uh, a few weeks ago. So we're kind of in the middle of this series uh, that we were calling Encountering Jesus. And what we're doing is we're, we're looking at the first five chapters in the book of John. And in the first five chapters, you see uh, John record a number of interactions that Jesus has like one-on-one with people. And in these interactions, these encounters, if you will, some really God, uh, Jesus says some amazing things that really like changes their life. And we think that if we look into this and we hear what Jesus is saying, we can, it, he will also change our lives. And so we're studying these encounters that Jesus has. And, and the one that we're going to uh, look at today is found in John chapter 4. You can turn there if you want, if you've got a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, then we'd love to give you one. We've got some in the, in the resource table out there. If you don't actually own a Bible, please take one of ours. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that so you can read it during the week. But uh, John chapter 4 is where we'll be. I also have the words up on the slides behind me. But in this encounter, it's a famous encounter with, uh, with Jesus and uh, the woman at the well is often uh, how she's referred to, but uh, I'm calling her the thirsty outsider, the thirsty outsider. You'll see why in a minute. But uh, in this encounter, what we see in Jesus is that Jesus offers everyone, and I mean everyone, like if he would offer this woman what he offers her, that he would offer it to everyone, the, the most marginalized in society and then marginalized from the marginalized, the, the outcast of the outcast, the outsider of the outsiders, that Jesus offers everyone, which then would include all of us, 
what we deeply are thirsting for. He offers us the satisfaction that we all deeply crave. So let me read this. I'm, it's a, we're going to ultimately look all the way through verse 26, but I'm going to break it up for us. And so I'm just going to start verses 1 through 10. So John chapter 4 begins with this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Verse verse 7 says, And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay. Where we're going to go this morning, look in this passage, is we're going to see that Jesus has this, this surprise offer, both to this woman at the well, this thirsty outsider, and to us as well. But also, a, it, it's a satisfying offer, and then it's a, if you will, a, a, a sacrificial offer. So that, that's where we're going. As the verses talk about the nature of this like surprise offer. And the reason it's a surprise offer is because Jesus is talking to her. Like just that alone is a surprise. Now to understand why that's a surprise, you have to understand the context. If you've been at a church for a while, you've probably heard this many times, but it's still helpful to remember. And for those of you who are maybe new to the Bible, just to give you some context here, uh, what, what's a big deal, and John actually talks about at the beginning of this uh, passage is that like, Jesus was traveling from one place to another, right? He's going uh, from Judea to Galilee, and it says that he has to pass through Samaria. The reason he, they make a big deal out of that is because Jews try not to pass through Samaria because the Jews really did hate the Samaritans and vice versa. And the reason that they hated them was because the Samaritans, they, that was like a it was like a stepchild tribe to the nation of Israel, but they weren't even really counted. And the reason they weren't counted is because uh, years before this interaction, the, the Jews had been conquered, Israel had been conquered by the Canaanites, and they had been exiled to Babylon. Most of them at least had. Some of them stayed back, and a few of them that stayed back ended up intermarrying with the Canaanite conquerors, which was forbidden to do as an Israelite, as a Jew. And yet some of them, they did. They intermarried. And when they intermarried, they became this, if you will, like the stepchild tribe within Israel. They weren't really of Israel, but they weren't really of anything else. It's the stepchild. And what also happened is that they, the Samaritans, they became, they be, uh, took a little bit of their Jewish religion and they took a little bit of the Canaanite religion and they formed a synchronistic religion that had bits and pieces of Ju- Judaism, but not the whole thing. And so the Jews just hated the Samaritans. They weren't of them. They were a different race. They, they were dis- immoral for even existing and they were heretics. In their minds, they were heretics. And so like, there was a lot of animosity there. In addition, in this interaction, the reason this is such a surprise that Jesus would be talking to this woman, it's not just because he, Jesus, was a Jew and she was a Samaritan woman, but also because he was a man and she was a woman. 
right? Because at Judaism, in Judaism, Jewish customs, it was really forbidden or looked down upon for a man to talk to a strange woman, a stranger to him, in public, like during the day. And they just didn't do it. It went against the conventions of the day. And then, in addition to that, we find out that Jesus is hanging out this well, the sixth hour, which in uh, that time, what they mean by that is it was noon. And uh, the reason I think John draws attention to that is that it's odd that this woman would be coming out to draw water at noon because most women came to draw out water in the morning because it was cooler in the day and so that you had water to drink and use for your work all day long. And so that's when women would go draw water. But apparently this woman came alone by herself in the middle of the day and it was Later on, we find in this interaction why, but she, we can, we can assume, and most uh, biblical scholars have said, like, she was doing that because she was an outcast of her own town and village, because she had, was a moral outcast, that she had done something that when she was to go when the rest of the ladies went to go draw water, they would all have just nothing to do with her, looking down on her, gossiping, pointing at her. She didn't even want to mess with that. So she just came by herself and no one else was in there in the heat of the day. And when she did, there was Jesus. And there Jesus talked to her, surprisingly. And in doing so, Jesus was reaching, after, reaching over Every single kind of divide, every single kind of barrier that we can put up amongst other people. I mean, just think about it. It's, she was reaching past a racial barrier, a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, a religious barrier, a moral barrier. But apparently, he didn't care. And that really surprised her. He, you know, he says, can you give me a drink? And she says, why are you talking to me? It astonished her, and guys, it should astonish us. It says something about our God. That our God would reach across every kind of divide that we can put between us and him. That that's what kind of person he is. That's the kind of God he is. That is awesome. Okay, that's the first thing to to notice about this interaction. The second thing to notice is is what he ends up offering her, this this satisfying offer. See, because... It's not just surprising that he would talk to her, but what what the conversation consists of is really fascinating. Let me read it for us. Again, picking up in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock. But Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And well, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here To draw water. Now, let me stop here. Okay, so what Jesus is doing, he says at the beginning, like, if you knew who it was that you're talking to, you knew who I was, then you wouldn't be uh, asking me why I'm talking to you. You would actually be asking me for the water that I have to offer. And then he begins this, uh, using this metaphor of living water. And basically, he's saying metaphorically, "I I have something that will satisfy you satisfy your deepest needs, your deepest soul thirst. 
But I think that this image of living water can be kind of lost on us because um, we live in America and we have, uh, we have access to drinking water basically everywhere we go. Now, in an arid uh, desert climate, at, at, in the uh, turn of, I guess, what is this, like basically 30 AD, uh, that wasn't as easily accessible to them. And so when Jesus set, offers her living water, like this is a big deal. But for us, we kind of miss that because we, we do ha- we have access to water. I think uh, there's only been a couple times in my entire life where I can remember I was incredibly thirsty. One of them's pretty funny. I was playing Little League uh, baseball. And my dad was one of the coaches, and I was second base, and I was awesome. And, um, but it, it was, I was probably like six or seven. And, um, but I, was, I, was, uh, I remember I was in the middle of a game, and it was just really hot outside. And so I start yelling at my dad, who was in the dugout, Dad, I need some water. I need some water. And he's like embarrassed, right? He's like, it's just hanging hang there, son. Like it's in the middle of the inning. You're about, like, you got one out. You just hang two more outs, and you can come get some water. And so I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. I hang in there. We get another out, and then I'm yelling, Dad, Dad, I need water. I need some water now. And he's yelling back, just hang in there. Hang in there, son. Well, next thing I know, I come to, and I've got a huge crowd of people around me, and I had passed out, like, I had had, like, a heat stroke, like, it was a big deal, and I come to, and I, like, vomit everywhere, and it was was really, really bad, it was really bad, and I still give my dad a hard time about that to this day, (laughs) but, like, our bodies, our bodies physically, they need water, and when you don't have water, it really is, it's agonizing, but when you get water, having not had it for a long time, there's perhaps nothing more physically satisfying than just because your body's just made up of water, right? whatever, 80% or whatever it is. It's, like, like, it's just such a big deal to have the water. But Jesus, Jesus is saying this. By using this imagery, he's saying, I have something to you that is as basic and necessary to, your, to you spiritually as water is to you physically. And without it, you're dying. But I think this metaphor actually goes even beyond that. See, this metaphor of living water means uh, that Jesus isn't just saying that what he has for us is life-saving, but he's also saying that it is life-giving. That it's life-giving, that it's truly satisfying from the inside. That he says, my water, if you get it, will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life right? Now, eternal life throughout scripture is not just a reference to a quantity of life, a never-ending, never-ending quantity, but it's also a reference to a quality of life, that this abundant life, this joy-filled, fully satisfied, heart-content, beautiful kind of life that we all deeply desire. And Jesus is saying, what I can do for you is I can put that kind of life inside of you. That will, it, will be, it will resonate even deeper in you than, than your thirst itself, so that it will spring up within you and satisfy all of your deepest soul thirst. This is what I can do for you. And guys, this is an amazing, amazing statement. Of course, she responds by saying, well, okay, I want that. Can, can I have that? Picking back up in verse 16, it says, um, 
Jesus said, or I guess 15, she says, the woman said to her, to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, and this is interesting. The conversation gets really interesting right here. He says to her, hey, go, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then there's probably this like long pause. And then she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, this hour is coming when you neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Let me stop there. Okay. She says, I want, to, I want this water. And then Jesus says, okay, let's talk about your sex life. Which really feels weird, right? I mean, you think about, you read this and you think, man, is Jesus like turn it, like changing the subject in the middle of this? And like, why would he do that? Is he trying to embarrass her? But that, he can't be trying to embarrass her. He's, he's reached over every kind of cultural, every kind of divide in the world just to talk to her. That this is the, like loving that he's even engaging her. He's not out to embarrass her. What is he doing? Is he changing the subject? No, he's not changing the subject. That what Jesus is saying is like, for you to understand what I have to offer, this living water, you need to understand how you've been searching for it your entire life and how you've been pursuing it. And for this woman, individually, like, we're all different in this respect, for, but for this woman, Jesus knows that the way that she's been searching for the thing to satisfy her deep soul thirst is she's been going after it in men. And he wants her to recognize that. Of course, it's really uncomfortable for her, so she does. She changes the subject. But guys, it's helpful for us to see and to wrap our hands around how amazing it is what Jesus has to offer, not just her, but all of us. This living water that can... Deeply satisfy us, springing up to eternal life, not just uh, quantity, but quality of life that we all deeply long for. We have to first recognize how we've been looking for that in other things. And so let me ask you, what do you think will make you happy? What, What do you think will really satisfy you? What have you been pursuing? What are you pursuing right now that you think will really satisfy you? See, for, the, for this woman, it was men, and it was, that was eating her alive. And for us, it can be career advancement, success, power, money, or the things that money will buy. It could, be, it could be our children and their success. It could be romantic love from our spouse or some other, one, other person. It, there's, there's a number of things. It could be experiences and thrills and the next big thing. We, it, it's, but we all have things that we think will bring us deep soul satisfaction and we chase after that. And I think we miss out on what an incredible offer Jesus is offering us here with this living water because we don't fully get how thirsty we are. Like it doesn't, this doesn't cause us to leap for joy when we realize Jesus has come. God himself has come to offer us the thing that deep, we all deeply need that will satisfy our deepest so long as we don't get so moved by that because we don't really feel all that thirsty. 
And I think the reason we don't feel all that thirsty, though I think we know we are to a degree, but we could say, yeah, that's nice, but not like I'm desperate for it. And the reason is because we, we've done something in our heads. We've convinced ourselves that our thirst is really just drive. And we've, we've mislabeled or we've relabeled our soul thirst to be our drive to get the things we think will satisfy us. You know what I'm saying? And so we don't see that we're thirsty. We see that we're driven. We, th- we think that, man, if I could just get that girl, or if I could get that job, or if I could get that, have that experience, or if I could get that level with, you know, whatever, then I will be satisfied. But we're driven to that because of this thirst, but we don't see it as that. But man, let, guys, it's helpful to, in this, it's really helpful for us to, to listen to those who have gone ahead of us and who have uh, achieved the few that have actually achieved their goals and achieved their dreams and what they have to say. Because oftentimes what they have to say is that they still are left with this deep thirst, even though they have accomplished their goals and their dreams. In fact, I, I always remember this interview with Tom Brady that he did on 60 Minutes. He said, he said it this way. He said, um, having just, like, this interview was done right after he won his third Super Bowl. He had just married a model, and they had just had their first kid, and he had just signed a contract to play for the New England Patriots, so he's going to make $60 million. And he's like, okay, this guy's achieving his dreams and his goal. I think things are pretty good. And yet in this interview, he says this. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people will say, hey, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dreams. Me? I think, God, there's got to be more than this. And I just wish I knew what it was. Or the great, uh, you know, before Brady's time, you have the, the great tennis champion, Boris Becker, with his, a, a, a similar story. Boris Becker said it this way. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. And yet it's this old song of movie stars and pop stars that commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy I had no inner peace. We think, man, well, I, I would rather have their problems than my problems, right? But, but the point is, they have the same problems. Like we all have the same problems, and that is, is that we, we're deeply thirsty, and we can't find anything to satisfy us. The difference between them is that they, they are no longer fooled in thinking that whatever it is that they've been driven by to achieve, thinking that would be it, they achieved it and realized it wasn't it. We, we're still fooled oftentimes. We think that, man, if we had to just achieve whatever it is, then I will be satisfied. They would say, no, man, may we, may we listen to them. I think no one put this better than um, the famous award-winning postmodern novelist, David Foster Wallace, a few years ago, a few years before he ended his life, uh, he was doing a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And what he said is really powerful and haunting. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some type of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. See, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, uh, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Wallace was uh, by no means a a religious uh, person, but he understood this idea that everyone worships. Everyone worships something. That everyone trusts and is looking for something to justify them and to satisfy them. And that whatever you're looking to justify you and whatever you're looking to satisfy you, that is the thing you're worshiping. Which just as a side note, uh, uh, there's a great uh, a pastor named John Piper, he's famously quoted as saying that, that uh, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And it's because of this idea that when we are satisfied in God, when we look to him to be the thing that justifies us and that satisfies us, then that exalts God and he's glorified in that. That that's how God actually made the world to work. That whatever we look to to justify us and to satisfy us, that is what we were worshiping. That's what we're glorifying. And God, Jesus is saying here, hey, I have the one thing that can truly satisfy. Come to me, glorify me, look to me to be the one that satisfies you because I really am the only one. I'm the only one who can do it. I'm the only one who is living water. Everything else will, as Wallace says, eat you alive. A few years after that commencement speech, Wallace did kill himself. And those last words, those words just kind of ring in your ears. As we're all looking to something to satisfy us, to make us happy. What are you looking to? Jesus says, nothing will but me. But I can. I can put within you living water that will flow up springs to eternal life, that will forever satisfy you, that is not conditioned on on circumstances, but is grounded in a person, in Jesus, and what he has done for you. That you can weather any kind of circumstance and still find satisfaction and joy. The woman... Here's him reference her sordid past with men and to get out of his gaze of someone who seems to really know him well, know her well, uh, she changes the subject and she brings up one of the great uh, theological questions of the day and that, this is what she says. Uh, she says, um, uh, verse uh, 20. Our fathers worshipped on the, this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, said to her, I who speak to you am he. Which, which the last part is absolutely crazy. Because if you think about it, th- this is the first time that Jesus has revealed so clearly who he is. And that, the, that he would pick a, a, a thirsty outsider, the outsider of the outsiders, to reveal that he's the Messiah. Again, what does this say about God? How does this tear down all of our preconceived notions that you have to do the right things, jump through the right hoops, do everything right for God to accept you? It just, like, this completely counterdicts that. It's just ridiculous that we would think that when this is what we see in Jesus. The one who deserved it least, we would see is the one that he reveals himself to. He comes after her. He pursues her. He accepts her. Now, that's, so just, man, that, worship him for that. That's amazing. But go back to the beginning of this, inter, or uh, the next part of this interaction, when she brings up, hey, where do we worship? What she's bringing up is a big theological issue. And again, it's because of what's happened with the Samaritans and, and the Jews, is that when the Samaritans formed this new religion, this synchronistic religion that pulled parts of Judaism into it, they had a temple and they had a sacrificial system, they had priests, but the Samaritans said, this is the right temple. And of course, the Jews were saying, no, the, the real temple is in Jerusalem. And so the woman is asking, hey, where, where, what's the right place to worship God? It's a great question. Jesus answers her question. But in answering it, he says something that's really profound and, and kind of goes over her head. Because what, what he says to her is, hey, there's going to come a time when it doesn't matter where you worship. And the reason is there's going to come a time, and that, that you see in your Bible, what it says here is that the, the hour is coming, and he says, that and, and is right now. And any time in, in the book of John, Jesus refers to the hour. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He, the hour is always a reference to the hour of his death. And so Jesus, in a real subtle way here, in a way that she misses, understandably so, but he, he's saying, hey, the hour is coming. When I, I'm going to die. See, I'm God, I'm the Messiah, and I'm, I'm going to die and pay for the sins of the world so that the gap between God and you is, is completely bridged. And because of that, we won't need temples any longer because temples are where the priests were and where the priests had to have, we had to have priests because there was this whole sacrificial system and the priests made the sacrifices on account of the people. And the reason the sacrifices had to be made is because God is holy and just and mankind is sinful. And so there was this gap between God and man and that we needed a sacrifice in order to bridge the gap. And those sacrifices took place at the temple which is why this was such a big deal. But Jesus is saying, hey, it's not going to matter anymore because I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice. I'm going to die for your sins. And you won't need a temple or priest or any other sacrifice because I'm the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. This goes over her head. 
And so she says, kind of throws up her arms. Hey, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but the Messiah is going to come one day. He's going to explain all of this to me. And that's when he says, well, that's who I am. Now, guys, why, why can Jesus satisfy us? Why, what, this living water, what, what is it about it? Like, we, you can perhaps see, perhaps, hopefully you believe that nothing else can, but why, nothing can satisfy you, but, of this world, but why can we believe that Jesus can? I could go on and on about this, and for sake of time, I'm going to have to keep it really short, but here's just, I want you to hear this. Like, we have these deep soul thirsts, we all do. And there's a lot of them, honestly. But just to think of a few, like we, we have this thirst for purpose. Like we all long to know that we matter, that, we, that life has meaning. And yet, there's really only two options. If, if, if there is no God, then we're all just accidents. And accidents don't have purpose. And you can try to have, give some purpose and some order to your life if that's what you believe, but ultimately your worldview if there is no God, it, it works against the idea that you could ever think that you have any purpose. But if there is a God, and that he made us, he created us, then we have a purpose. The Bible tells us that we were made by God and for God. And that what we see in Jesus is God himself coming after us to show us that he does exist and to tell us that we have a meaning to our life, to tell us that we have a purpose for existing. And then he dies so that we could actually fulfill that purpose. And so our thirst to know, do we have a purpose, is quenched in Jesus, satisfied in Jesus. That's a part of the living water. Or think about love. Think about how we all have this deep thirst for this perfect kind of love. Psychologists, counselors, all these books have been written that tells us that man, one of the reasons we're, we're so messed up is because we haven't received the kind of love that we deeply need. We didn't get it from our mom. We didn't get it from our dad. We didn't get it from our teachers or our mentors. We didn't get, we're not getting it from our spouses. But if we just had the love that we all need, then it would help us be better people, the people that we ought to be. But the problem is, is that the love that we received is not unconditional. It's not always present. It's not always patient with us. It's not always available. We haven't had people in our lives who always just exist for us and always just out there to make sure that we're doing well and all that kind of stuff. We, but if we had that, we think, oh man, I, I could probably be a more well-rounded person, but I haven't had that. I mean, I think about what my kids need for me and it freaks me out. Like, I know that Camp and Enoch and Della, like, they need a dad who's going to always be there for them and always be patient, always be kind, and always be gracious and is completely committed to their well-being has never, never got his eyes on himself and would be blowing them off from looking out for my own good. Like, I, they need that. That would be good for them. I think we always say, yeah, that would be good for them. But, man, who can do that? No one can do that. And none of us have had that. And so we all are dysfunctional because we haven't gotten the love that we need. And yet here's Jesus, the God of the universe, coming into our world to die in our place so that we could be accepted into his family, to experience the love from our Heavenly Father who is always there for us, who will never leave us, who will never forsake us 
who is the one that accepts us exactly as we are because of what Jesus did on our behalf. The one who completely welcomes us, who never blows us off. The love that we've always longed for, the love that we all have always longed for is found in Jesus. And that quenches our thirst. Think about our thirst for security. We all long for security. We all want, we all want to know that we're going to be okay. We all want to look at this world and know it's going to work out all right. But we look around in this world and we have no reason to believe that. Things seem to just be getting worse and worse and worse. And so we're left thinking everything is unstable. And we find a relationship or we find a job that we think brings us some kind of security and it gives us some sort of peace. But man, time goes on and all of a sudden relationships get rocky and jobs get insecure. Nothing is as stable as we wish it would be. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus says, I've come to make all things new. To set right everything that's been broken. To redeem this broken world. To bring reconciliation between us and God and man and man and in man and creation. That's what he's come to do. He says, hey, no one will ever snatch you out of my father's hand. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Nothing will separate you from the love that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That you are forever secure. That you never have to worry. Don't be anxious about anything. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Don't worry. Why not worry? Because God, who loves you, cares about you. You are secure. You're stable. You have the promise that even when things are going wrong, God is at work in that, working to make all things work for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. He tells us that we have the promise that all is broken will be redeemed. That quenches our thirst, guys, for security. I could go on and on. Peace. Clear conscious, knowing that you matter. I mean, just all satisfied in Jesus. And Jesus also does one other thing that nothing else, that nothing else can do. See, because not only in Jesus are we promised that when we go to him, he will give us satisfying life. But he also does what nothing else can do. And that when we go to them, other things, career, family, job, experiences, whatever it might be, and we look to them to bring us a satisfying life. And if we fail them, we don't do as good in the job as we wish we had. We don't love our spouse as good as we needed to. We're not there for our kids like we need to. And they run away. That's what happens. They run away. They go away. You fail your career. Your career does not forgive you. It just brings you self-loathing and shame. But you fail your Savior, and he forgives you. Think about this. See, Jesus, that, Jesus meets this woman at the well. And the reason that she finds this offer for satisfying love, satisfying life, it's living water. It's because Jesus was thirsty. That's why he was at the well. Why, why was he thirsty? Well, it's because a God of the universe had taken on flesh. He'd come to the earth. And he was a mortal man who got weary 
And you're not thirsty. You could say that this woman found the living water because Jesus said, I thirst. And it's not the only time Jesus says, I thirst, in the book of John. And later on, when Christ is being crucified on the cross, one of the things that he shouts from the cross is, I thirst. And when he shouts, I thirst, he's not talking about a physical thirst. The, the, the paradoxical thing about this is that Christ on the cross was dying for our sins. And as a result, the sins of the world, your sin and my sin, was being placed on Christ so that God the Father would have to look away from Jesus, turn his face from Jesus to forsake Jesus. And in that, Jesus experiences the cosmic thirst to an extent that we can't fully wrap our mind around. But the greatest death by dehydration is just a small hint of. And so he cries out, I thirst. But Jesus thirst so that we could drink deeply of living water. See, the satisfying offer from Jesus came through his sacrifice. And the reason that this woman could have living water was because Jesus was going to die for her, thirst for her. And the reason that we can have living water is because Jesus died for us, thirsted for us. Guys, do you believe that? Where are you looking for happiness? What do you think will satisfy you? Friends, no, look no further than Jesus. He alone offers us what we deeply desire, our thirst, our soul thirsts for. How do you receive what he has to offer? Well, he tells us in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, and what it is that is saying to, that, uh, and who it is that is saying to you, "Give me a drink," you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Guys, it's that simple. How do you get it? You ask for it because it's a gift, and it is a gift. Think about how do you earn a wage? I mean, how do you how do you get a wage? You have to earn it. You have to work for it, right? But how do you get a gift? You simply just receive it. The only thing that will keep you from receiving a gift is pride. That says, I don't want your charity. Friends, may God humble us. May we ask Jesus for what he has to offer, the thing that we all have deeply longed for. And for the Christians in this room who have already offered, I mean, already asked for what Jesus has to offer. If you feel a sense of, of, of like, yes, this, I know this is true, but I don't feel this kind of satisfaction. Guys, the answer isn't to look for something else. It is to drink deeply of what you've been given. It's to remember what you've been given. And so let us remember. Let's remember the love that you've been given in Jesus, the security that you've been promised in Jesus, meaning you've been promised in Jesus, the hope, the peace, on and on. Think about it. Remember it. Drink deeply of it. 
we're going to end this morning by taking communion. And so we're going to worship Jesus for what he has done, who he is, that he would reach across every kind of divide to come after us and offer us what we all deeply long for, that move us, the outsiders, just like this woman was, all of us to move us, the outsiders, into his family, that we would be true insiders in the family of God, that this is what he said. Let's worship Jesus for that. And let's remember what he did to make it possible that his blood was spilled, that his body was broken so that we could drink deeply of the living water that he promises. Father, we, uh, we, we acknowledge that we, God, we, we look to other things to satisfy us. You know, right now, uh, we, we see that that is just so foolish. May we turn to Jesus, the one that has loved us with the love that we've always longed for, that provides us the security that we desperately thirst for, the one who gives us meaning and purpose to our life. And on and on, may we look to Jesus to satisfy us. Now, he is awesome. You are awesome, God. We're so thankful for that Jesus died for us, that we could enter into your family to go from outsiders to being sons and daughters. God, in light of what Christ has done for us and the joy we find in him, we want to worship you now. Amen.